0: Hello everyone and welcome to Do Some Miss, the official podcast of the Royal Canadian Infantry Corps. On today's episode, we're going to be talking small arms and weapons. We've got a special guest coming in who runs the safety course if you're interested in getting these on your own time. But first, a word from our sponsor.
1: Hello, I am Free Text-to-Speech Voice Software. Me too. The agency hired us for zero dollars because they have no budget
2: times are tough now start the ad
1: where can i go to get the best coffee on base cage town
2: the red sash
1: what about warm winter clothing sleeping bags headlamps
2: and pt kit the red sash
1: where can i go to buy my boots in april when i get my fiscal year allotment
2: the red sash
1: what about the two rcr kit shop
2: soldier please the red sash
1: this commercial should have a jingle
2: The best part of waking up is red sash in your cup.
1: You cannot use that, it is copyright theft.
2: I see a black door and I want it painted red. No colors anymore, I want them to turn red. I see the troops walk by, dressed in their red sash clothes. I have to buy new boots, until my LCF shows. Can you
1: sing the jingle?
2: No, I am only the free demo trial without premium add-on content.
1: I will go to the Red Sash to get the best coffee and the best boot selection on Base Town.
2: And now, back to the show.
0: Welcome back everyone. Today we're going to be talking about small arms, weapons, firearms, uh, and what all those terms mean uh, in an infantry context. Specifically when we talk small arms, we're talking dismounted weapon systems that are, the infantry is using. Anything from uh, handguns up through machine guns, rifles, uh, pistols, up to and including the 50 cal, but generally we're going to be talking about stuff that is at the soldier level, what the soldiers are firing, either individually or crew served. We're not going to be covering the the LAV-3 or the LAV-6 and its 25mm cannon. That's going to be at a a different episode. We are going to be covering things at platoon level and smaller. We're not necessarily going to cover non-firearm or non-small arms related things. We're not going to get into claymores, grenades, and bayonets. We're also not going to be covering the specifics of these weapons, be it uh, the, you know how much they weigh, their exact length, and whatnot. We're more going to be talking about calibers and capability. We're also not going to be talking sniper rifles. If you want to l- listen to more information about sniper rifles, go back and listen to episode four when we had the OIC snipers on here to talk to talk about the medium and long-range sniper rifles that they use. We're going to be talking about the different use, the terminology, what is the weapon, what's a gun versus a firearm versus a rifle, pistol, magazine, clip, belt, uh, etc. We're going to talk about the controversial switch from 7.62 millimeter to 5.56 millimeter. Later, we're going to have a guest, Chris, who is in the Army but he's certified as a civilian firearms instructor. Think of that almost like the interview is going to be kind of like an annex to the episode on small arms for anyone who's in the military thinking about uh, getting. C- into firearms in a a civilian context, either for hunting or target shooting or collecting. So the interview today is going to be an annex on on how to to go down that route. Why you need to know about small arms, it's going to help people in the military understand the context of of the history of why we have what we do now. Anyone not in the military, it's going to help them understand uh, what we use in the context uh, in which we use them. And as well, just to understand the the capabilities of the small arms we're putting in soldiers' hands. We're going to start by talking about the, the different types When we talk rifle, we're talking about a a small arm that is in somebody's hand, uh, two-handed generally in size. You've got one hand on the control systems and one hand on the the stock or the handguard, and that is a rifle. When we're talking about a handgun, it's operated with one hand for the most part. It can be either a revolver that uses a cylinder, it can be a pistol that has the magazine that goes in the uh, hand grip. I understand that we're talking somewhat theater of the mind here, and I'm going to be using a lot of weapon parts that may be better off with graphics that I'm not able to show you right now, so I'll try to explain them to you the best that I can. As you'll hear later with the guest, we're going to talk various action types. That's more of a a civilian thing, because they learn more action types on the Civilian Firearm Safety course. In order to talk about the action types in the Army context, there are some terms that need to be uh, clarified. We often use uh, bolt action in the sniper rifles only. Uh, However, historically, we're going to talk what a bolt action is, and that means you're pulling up a mechanism on the side of the rifle to reload it, you pull the trigger, then you have to operate the bolt to pull it again, or to fire it again. Semi-auto, you put the magazine that holds, a magazine by definition is a box that holds multiple cartridges, so you put that magazine in the the rifle, and you're firing shots uh, after cocking it or readying it, and then each time you pull the trigger, a round is coming out uh, until you stop pulling the trigger or the magazine is empty, and that's semi-auto. We'll cover historically what rifles have been semi-auto. Full automatic, whether it is a box-fed magazine or a belt-fed machine gun, full auto means that once you've cocked or readied that weapon, you pull the trigger and bullets are going to come out of the end of the barrel until you release the trigger, or until the magazine or belt is empty, and that is known as automatic fire. The parts of most uh, weapons we use in a small-arm context will go from back to front. Butt is the part that is going to rest on your shoulder when you're shooting it. Then you've got the stock, which is between the butt and the action. The action itself is where you've got the majority of the working parts. It's uh, often where the magazine uh, or the belt goes in. It is where the trigger group is, it's where the bolt is and all the, the operating parts. If you are going to have sights on the, the weapon, it's going to generally be on top of the action, be it uh, iron sights or an optic of some sort, be it a scope or a combat sight. Moving forward from the action, you've got the barrel that comes from the chamber to the end, and then you've got a handguard that covers the, the barrel, so you're not touching your, your offhand on that hot surface of the barrel after it's firing. Other components of the weapons we use, uh, some rifles or machine guns may have bipods or tripods, and bi or tri either meaning two or three, that's the part that is going to stabilize it if it's meant to uh, stay in place and shoot, uh, like a large machine gun you might put on a tripod, or a machine gun that you're able to carry yourself, but if you are laying down in the prone to put that in a stable firing position, two legs pop out, and that's a bipod. Those are often on machine guns, but not necessarily on rifles. Lastly, for terminology, uh, we've already covered magazine, uh, which is a, a box that multiple cartridges go in, and belt would be uh, not a magazine, but a lo- like, quite literally a belt of cartridges that are linked together by pieces of metal called links, and you would have seen that in numerous military movies. You've got a belt instead of a box that goes in the machine gun, and it is fed uh, from one side, more often than not from a number 2 if it's a crew-serve weapon, so you've got two people operating the machine gun, if it's a medium machine gun or or larger, and that belt of ammunition goes through as long as that number 1 on the machine gun is pulling down the trigger. And the difference between magazine and clip. a, A magazine is something that holds multiple cartridges that goes in the weapon. A clip is something that is differentiated by a magazine in that it is multiple cartridges on a piece of plastic or on a piece of metal, and then you load that into the magazine, or you load it directly into the weapon itself, uh, and we'll cover the various types of uh, differences of those when we talk history. Now that we've talked about the theory and the definitions, we'll look at employment. The typical soldier in the infantry is going to have a rifle. That is, we use a service rifle called the C7, and then depending on what country you belong to or what uh, orbat you use, we often have light machine guns in a section context to complement those uh, rifle soldiers as well. They often fire the same calibre, uh, either through belt or magazine. Now we use a, a belt-fed C9 machine gun that fires the same calibre as the C7. Above from that, we get into general purpose machine guns at the platoon weapons debt. So, platoon is often broken down into three sections uh, and a weapons debt and headquarters. And in that weapons debt, you have your support weapons, uh, some of which we won't get into here because they're not small arms related, be it uh, anti-armor weapons or, or mortars, historically, the 60 mil. We will be covering the, the C6 general person purpose machine gun that fires a larger 7.62 round than the 5.56, and, and that's how that employed. The platoon commander has those support weapons to move around the battle space, crew served by two people, uh, not necessarily doing section attacks, ups and downs, uh, but forming a fire base for the assault element uh, who have the lighter small arms, your C7s and your C9s, to move around uh, and do their flankings, or whatever other manoeuvre is required. So to clarify, we've got the C7 is by far the most common service rifle, it's not just infantry, it's, it's the service rifle of the Canadian Armed Forces uh, in totality. Then you've got the C9 machine gun, also carried by one person, or the C6, which is a heavier calibre firing the 7.62. That list is by no means uh, ends at that. There's numerous other small arms. If you uh, work at a place that has the small arms menu chart, there's dozens of dozens of small arms that are considered in use by the the CAF, but those three are by a a massive margin the most popular. We've already mentioned the sniper ones we're not going to get into. There's a significant amount of target rifles, both air and 22 caliber, uh, and shoots brand that are used for biathlon and other uh, marksmanship purposes. Older ones like the Lee Enfield are still in service. The Rangers up north uh, have just gotten a new a rifle based on a, a 308 platform, 7.62, that we're, we're not going to cover because it, it's rare. There's all different sorts of shotguns, uh, not just the Remington pump that's uh, used for breaching and other purposes. But we're not going to look at the shotguns. And then there's multiple variants as well, from uh, C7A1 uh, on through to when it first got the optic, to uh, the new one with the green furniture. We're, we're just going to talk about C7s and C8s uh, separate. We're not going to cover the specs of every, each individual uh, mod as we go. And then there's multiple versions of the C6, either with the, the stock on as it's used uh, in a dismounted roll, and then you've got them in a pintle roll, or the coax roll in lav. Or we're just going to refer to the C6 as a C6. There's also multiple handguns uh, in use and service, but they're, they're not really that common if you talk about an infantry context. MPs use pistols, uh, other forces use pistols to, to varying degrees as a secondary sidearm. It's not going to be used as the primary in an infantry context. That's the, re- the reason we're not going to talk about it in great deal. We've had the Browning 1911-based uh, 9mm high power for quite some time now. However, we're we're not gonna cover that. It is a 25 meter effective range, and and even then, you're lucky to hit a a running person with a pistol if they're they're moving at all from 25 meters. So we're not gonna get into that. It it is something that would be given to, in an infantry context, somebody who's in a hot theater who may work in a headquarters environment, uh, somebody who may be based out of a vehicle for which a a C8 might even be too uh, cumbersome, uh, but we're only gonna talk for the most part about the, the small arms. And in bringing up the C8, that's one that will be talked about. The C8 was originally a, an armor type of rifle. It is a small, smaller and shorter C7. Fires the same caliber, it has the same action type, same magazine, same everything else. Uh, it, it was a, originally conceived as something that, for somebody who's in a vehicle, and, and not just for uh, an infantry context, but if somebody's inside a tank and a C7 might be a little bit uh, too long and cumbersome, a C8 is a way that they can still have a, a rifle with a similar capability uh, but in a shorter package. There have been infantiers using C8s as well, but I'd really, I'd really like to cover uh, barrel length next, uh, based on my small arms background and, and what sort of things you're sacrificing with barrel length for those out there who might think C8s are cool because they're short. So when we talk about the 5.56 cartridge, it's by 45 uh, mil in length, based on the 223 Remington civilian cartridge. It's a very small bullet compared to uh, hunting grounds out there. The 5.56 is something that is uh, talked about with great controversy in the hunting community of if it's even enough uh, of a bullet to to take down a deer humanely. Uh, it, there's all sorts of gun forums out there that you can uh, read about that. So before we get to the history, we'll talk. It's a significant amount of powder that's burning. Uh, screaming this little bullet, uh, comparatively, out of the barrel, and that takes time to burn. So right after you pull the trigger, launch the the bullet down the barrel, that propellant takes time to burn off. And the shorter you make the barrel, either on a machine gun, for those of you who are C9 qualified, who know that the barrel comes in two different lengths, and as well the difference between a, a, a C7 and a C8 with a shorter barrel, out of a 5.56 or 223, it, it takes over two feet to uh, to burn that powder off, and anything less than that, the bullet is coming out of the end of the barrel without all the propellant burned. So therefore, it's going to be at a slower velocity. Uh, from the rifle shooter website, I'll source this. A lot of these are going to be imperial measurements, but uh, bear with me. So if you have a 26-inch barrel. A 5.56 bullet is leaving at 3,300 feet per second uh, on average, depending on the propellant and other factors, or or the exact grain count of that bullet. But again, 3,300 feet per second out of a 26-inch barrel. A 22-inch barrel, you're losing 100 feet per second at 3,200. 18-inch barrel, 3,100 feet per second. 14-inch barrel, 2,900 feet per second. 10-inch barrel, 2,600 feet per second. And 6-inch barrel, 2,100 feet per second. So, while the difference between a 26-inch barrel at 3300 and a 6-inch barrel at 2100, obviously, if you uh, shoot a 6-inch barrel 5.56 five, round against somebody's head uh, from 10 feet away, th- they're gonna die whether they're hit with a 2100 uh, feet per second or a 3300 feet per second. However, wh- where that really starts to matter is that energy is exponentially compounded based on velocity. So, when you're shooting at somebody who is you know, two to 300 meters away, if that round is going several hundred feet per second faster, it is going to do significantly more damage. And again, we'll get into this in more detail when we talked about the the switch from 7.62 to 5.56 back in the day. As well, what you have to take into account is that velocity is causing a significantly more drop uh, from the point of aim to point of impact. So, the faster you can make the round go out of the barrel, If you're shooting at something at 300 meters away, the the more likely it is to hit the point of impact out of a longer barrel. Whereas if you're shooting that out of, uh, you know, a US SOCOM Mark 18-like rifle with a 10-inch barrel, there's significantly more drop. And I'm talking like six to eight inches more drop uh, if you're firing at something several uh, hundred meters away. So it's not just the energy on impact, and we're not gonna get into the ballistics of exactly what happens, there's all sorts of Websites you can go to to look up the Fackler velocity and what happens when a round tumbles upon a certain um, Velocity on the human body that's outside of the scope to talk ballistics However, I just do want to cover when we're talking the difference between the C7 and C8 barrel length and the C9 with the long barrel versus the C9 with the short barrel you are giving up significant capability when you go to a shorter barrel, both in terms of energy of that bullet when it hits the enemy, and and as well the probability that you're going to hit it to begin with. It's going to drop more and it's going to be more affected by the wind when it's going a shorter velocity. So whether or not it kills the other person when it hits it, the longer your barrel, the more likely you are to hit it to begin with and, and kill that enemy. Up next, we'll talk about the historic breakdown, not just uh, of Canada's uh, small arms, but as well as the US Army, Marine Corps, UK, Australia, and uh, Russia. We'll look at this uh, three ways. We'll look at the primary service rifle at the time, we'll look at the section level support weapons, and we'll look at the GPMG at platoon level. So Canada, we won't go quite so far back as the Ross rifle and and the drama between the Ross rifle and the Lee-Enfield. But we had the Lee-Enfield bolt-action rifle through, for the most part, through most World Wars, up until the the mid-1950s. The Lee-Enfield was based on the 303 British. It was a magazine-fed bolt-action rifle. Heavy and cumbersome by today's standards, especially when you look at the the average human size back then. You know, you're talking about a rifle that's the better part of 4 feet and significantly heavier than today's, Uh, but bolt-action, Tough and sturdy was was deemed by some to be uh, more battle-ready for the trenches than, than the Ross Rifle, but used the 303 that the, the Brits did as well. The UK Army uh, also used that Lee-Enfield, as did the Australian Army for the bulk of the first two World Wars. As mentioned, we then switched to the section level uh, C1 for the, uh, based on the FN, FAL, and that was in service from Canada to the late 50s to the late 80s. There are a significant amount of soldiers, uh, both retired and, and the uh, the older ones still serving, who look at this fondly. It changed to the NATO standard 7.62 based on the 308 Winchester civilian round, significantly more punch uh, than a, than the 5.56 that we'll get into in a second. But that was the first attempt to standardize NATO calibers. E- the U.S. Army had gone to the uh, the M14 rifle at that time. And if you watch uh, Full Metal Jacket, you'll see that's the, the rifle they do their training with is the M14 that the U.S. Army was using at the time, as well as the uh, U.S. Marine Corps. Both the U.S. Army and Marine Corps had used the M1 Garand, uh, often cited as the the small arm that won World War II on behalf of the U.S. It was a semi-auto, 30 uh, odd six round. If you are familiar with the 7.62 round we use today, uh, and haven't seen a 30 odd six, it's the same 30 caliber bullet, but it's pushed out of a, a a casing that's even longer. So wh- while not you're not getting double the velocity or anything like that, you are getting a bit more velocity, but a, a very heavy beefy rifle used uh, in America at the time. In the Russian army for the most part using the uh, the Mosin Nagant, uh, a rifle that is still uh, available in uh, surplus like context today. With the bulk of NATO's forces going to a semi-auto over a bolt action, Russia did uh, bypass the semi-auto and went straight from a bolt to the AK-47 uh, automatic rifle, still uh, ubiquitous throughout the world today. Uh, a box-fed, automatic-capable uh, rifle. Still everywhere, uh, Africa, the Middle East, it, and everywhere else. So before we get any more modern in the Canadian context with the uh, the C-1, we'll look at the, uh, the LMGs, we had the Thompson, the Sten and the Bren throughout the second world war and beyond but then we went to the c2 so if you look at the the c1 battle rifle you're talking about a slightly beefier rifle that is now based on the same caliber looks 90 percent the same but it's more beefy beefier barrel with a bipod that's what you're using as the section support weapon and throughout we had the c5 browning as the uh, platoon level support weapon It, it looks like a mini version of the browning 50 cal heavy machine gun Uh, Some reserve armories and other armies still have these uh, in their war stock, but that was based on the 7.62 NATO calibre as well. US-wise, when we go back historically looking at the the light machine guns, the US had uh, the M1918 BAR. If you watch Saving Private Ryan, you've got the one guy driving around at the end on the back of the the rabbit, that's the BAR, uh, an auto-capable 30 odd 6 beast of a a section-level support weapon. They also had the uh, the M14, M15, Uh, they attempted to do uh, auto variants uh, to some success. Uh, They also, US Marine Corps, their sections are broken down somewhat differently than ours. They have significantly larger sections, almost like mini-platoons. And after going with the M19 uh, BAR, they they briefly had that declared on SAT, and they used the M60 in their sections, uh, based on the 7.62, a very common Vietnam support weapon machine gun. Uh, but again, their sections were, uh, you know, almost 15 in strength. The UK Army had the Bren gun as the section support weapon uh, through the 80s. Uh, and as well, they had the the uh, the Vickers and the L7 MAG, the FN MAG and the C6 uh, to varying uh, extents as the platoon support weapons after that. Australian Army, somewhat the same. Uh, up to the uh, 50s, they went to the L1A1, the SLR, uh, similar to our C1, C2, FN, FAL. Uh, some australians used m16s in vietnam and somewhat of a mix between the australians using uh, the vickers 1919 and m60 as their platoon support weapons using some british and some americans russians uh, up through the 50s had the ak-47 rpds and rpks built on similar calibers and uh, rp46s and sgms uh, as well until they started to change to the uh, the AK-74, RPK-74, and PKM's that they're using today. But before we get into that, back to Canada. So, using the C1 up to the late 80s at section level, the US had gone to the M16, uh, predominantly in Vietnam. And again, if you've watched uh, Full Metal Jacket, you'll see they do their training with the M14, the 7.62 rifle for the first half of the movie. Uh, But then when they do the cutscene and go to Vietnam, they're using that M16, uh, auto-capable, we won't get into uh, all the uh, the old wives' tales and the myths over, you know, did soldiers get any training on it? Uh, did they think they not needed to clean it? Did they think it was a magic robot rifle? We're not going to cover that. However, one thing that is worth covering is the, the difference between the 7.62 and the 5.56. There was a significant amount of research and data done on what is the most effective way a group of people can kill another group of people the most effectively in an army context uh, when they're the enemy. If you give everyone in the section, platoon and beyond, big rifles, and I'm I'm talking like 10-pound rifles firing 7.62, it is very hard to rapid rate hit targets, uh, and if you've ever tried to fire uh, a heavier rifle, firing a heavy cartridge, rapid rate, extremely hard to keep that on target. There is no question that obviously a 30 caliber bullet is going to do significantly more damage than a 223 bullet if it happens to hit the target, but the data was based on the more people you put firing 5.56 pi- five, five, rifles versus 7.62 rifles in a row, you can carry significantly more ammo for the same weight, and as well, you're much more likely to hit the target to begin with. So while every soldier might not have as much uh, energy coming out of the barrel per round at the 556. The theory goes and the decision was that if you give if that is the service rifle, you have many more rounds going down range because they weigh less each shoulder is able to carry some and it's much easier to handle the recoil not just because of the uh, the changes to the m 16 and C17 style rifles with the, the pistol grip makes it easier to fire and handle, but more soldiers are carrying that as well, you still have the support weapons to fire uh, the medium machine guns, general purpose machine guns, firing the 7.62 when required, uh, against any material, uh, both vehicles or cinder blocks or whatever, you still had the C6 at platoon level to do that, but I, I know that's something that a lot of uh, people who love the C1 and, C- and C2 or other 7.62-like platforms, they really feel like at the individual level, they lost uh, firepower going to the 5.56 5. round, However, when you look at it as a force in total, you have more soldiers hitting more targets with the 5.56. And and again, I've already said we're not going to talk the ballistics of when that hits a person, what it's going to do, is it going to kill them or wound them, and all the theories out there. It it was based on, you know, the intent was to wound, so that would take multiple people out of the battle space in order to to care for that casualty. Uh, That's not the case. If you're hitting somebody, you're still wanting to kill them in a military context in the army. And you can hit more people with more rounds if, if soldiers have 5.56. Five, and again, that doesn't mean that the whole army is going to 5.56. Five, you still have those other support weapons to, to hit bigger things when required. The U.S. Army had already switched to the M16 uh, quite a bit before we did in terms of a 5.56. Five, we went with the uh, C7, C8 variants in the late 80s, uh, Colt-based as well, uh, built by Demaco or DeMarco now Colt Canada. And that was our version. Originally, it was uh, the all black with the carrying handle on top, and uh, now has the C79 optic, slightly magnified. uh, Heavy and clunky, uh, drops off the rifle uh, often if you're not uh, very careful keeping the the wing nuts tight. But generally an effective rifle. We've had it uh, in service uh, since the late 80s, and that has been our service rifle throughout. One thing I, I didn't mention is when I talked about the support weapons, Some soldiers per section can also have the M203 40mm grenade launcher attached onto the bottom of the rifle. So under the barrel and under the handguard, you've got this 40mm tube that gives you the ability to reach out a couple hundred meters, much beyond what you're going to throw a hand grenade, in order to have some explosive effects on targets uh, a few hundred meters away. Around the same time we we acquired the C7 and C8, we acquired the the C9 light machine gun uh, in the late 80s as well. It was meant to complement the C7 uh, at section level. It's mostly belt-fed. It still has the capability to accept C7 magazines on the side uh, in lieu of not putting a belt in. And on the support side of the house, we went from the C5 to the C6 uh, in the mid-80s. And that is what we've had ever since at the platoon level for a support weapon. Uh, Ubiquitous for us, again, not just in the platoon weapons debt. Used in all sorts of varying uh, degrees. It's the coax on the tank, it's the coax on the lav. It's used in a pintle everywhere. You can fire it out of the side of a helicopter. Uh, C6, general purpose machine gun. Most armies in the world ha- have gone with it as well. Even the US Army that tried numerous uh, variants of M60, uh, they've gone to the M240 as well, which is the same thing. It's the FN uh, MAG, or what we call the C6. A- and most NATO armies in the world have gone to that as their platoon support weapon. Even the Australians who had uh, the M60 through the Vietnam era, uh, they've gone to the C6 as well. And likewise, most other armies in the world using some variant, or I should say most NATO armies in the world using some sort of variant of what we call the uh, C9 as their section support weapon. We've got the M249 or the FN mini they call it in the, uh, the US. Likewise with Australia, th- the one exception being the UK Army uh, rifles and the Australian Army rifles. While they keep the standard NATO agreement uh, magazine and calibers 5.56, they have uh, they use different rifles, so their rifles don't look like the C7 or the, uh, the M4 or the M16. The British use a rifle called the SA-80 or the L85 that's a bullpup configuration, so instead of the pistol grip being uh, behind the magazine, the pistol grip is in front of the magazine, and the barrel then goes uh, far back, so the trigger linkage Uh, between the trigger and the hammer is very long. Uh, looks futuristic, varying degrees of success for them. And the Brits have come up with uh, varying uh, modifications along the way to try to make that uh, more accurate and more uh, reliable. Australian Army, using the the Steyr AUG as their primary service rifle, again, using the the standard NATO agreement magazine and calibre, but the rifle looks uh, quite different than ours. That about wraps up the the history of of how we've got to what we have now with the C-7 and C-8 at at individual level, the C-9 at section support level, and the C-6 at support level, as well as talking about what other armies have done. The Infantry Corps is looking at the the sharpshooter capability and what it uh, can perform uh, at the section level. Throughout the Afghan years, uh, numerous different organizations identified that it would be nice to have something between a Rifle, infantry, and a Sniper in order to make precision shots beyond the th- the 300 range band. Again, when looking at what a C7 is capable of, you're talking about uh, 300 individually or 400 as a group, max effective range. The The bullet will travel farther than that, but what a soldier can actually hit. So in the Afghan era, we were experimenting with putting underemployed snipers in with the companies or the platoons in order to be able to reach out uh, beyond the 300-400 range band, up to 600-800 when precision effects were required. The Core is looking at formalizing that somewhat, as you heard in the Sniper episode and episode 4. They are about to buy a 7.62 version. Uh, it looks like a beefed up C7 as their new semi-auto sniper rifle. And we are looking at potentially buying some more of those to beef up the section. So each section potentially having a, a 7.62 platform as well. Uh, to, to be a sharpshooter, it, it is not a sniper light, it is merely uh, an infantier that has a 7.62 rifle uh, in order to push the limit out beyond uh, three to 400 uh, based on individual or group shots. Based on some of the things we talked about earlier, not just uh, with the C7 and C8 differences, but a heavier bullet is able to travel farther with a trained shooter who can, uh, who can push the, the limits of what that can do. Not yet decided, not yet purchased, uh, but it is something that we're looking at in the, in the next 5-year horizon. And the way we achieve competency with all these, uh, each one of these uh, small arms that I've mentioned, be they uh, a rifle or a machine gun, has uh, personal weapons test levels associated with it. So you have level one, two, three, four, working your way up from, you know, one being the understanding the basic mechanism and just getting rounds on target, and then up through the two, three, four, uh, increase proficiency with that weapon system, requiring higher scores. And, and you know, I would say the a vague rounding of it is the farther you get toward the the tip of the spear, the the higher level your requirement is going to be of your trade. So, infantiers often have a level three requirement uh, with their service rifle or machine guns. And if you're about to deploy, you often get. Uh, extra ammo and extra budget allocation to get you qualified up to uh, level 4 on those weapon systems. So you're that much more effective before you go overseas. So that about covers uh, where we're at with small arms right now in the Canadian Armed Forces. Uh, in lieu of not having this be a 6-hour podcast, that's going to have to be uh, where we cut it off. Anyone has any uh, listener feedback of any things that I covered or how much you love the, uh, the FN or C1 or C2, feel free to leave that in, in the comments below at the Facebook group. Our guest today, uh, switching gears somewhat, if you think of that main part of the episode as the the main body, we, we've got an annex coming up. So if anyone out there in the military is interested in uh, purchasing weapons, uh, as we call it in the military context, uh, known as firearms on Civvy Street, our next guest is called Chris. He's in the Army as well. He's an engineer by trade, uh, but I don't think you're going to find any uh, infanteers out there who are or upset that an engineer is here. Uh, Engineers are are definitely well-loved in the infantry community for what they bring to the table a capability. Uh, But Chris is going to be here in his context of a civilian firearms instructor. So if anyone out there is interested in owning military-style firearms, he's going to answer the question of when you can do that, uh, what you can buy, what you can't, and the steps you have to go through to be able to to do it on Civvy Street. Uh, And I assure you, it's not as simple as just uh, you're qualified in the Army so you can go buy some guns. So Chris is up next, and with that, on to the interview. On today's episode, we've got Chris. He's a Firearm Safety Course Instructor uh, here on the base and in the surrounding area. Uh, Chris, thank you very much for coming on the podcast.
3: Uh, Thanks, Sean, for having
0: me. Uh, Very excited to be here. One thing we should note before we start on this discussion, this this is in the winter of 2020, uh, and we are not uh, lawyers in any way. Full disclaimer, we are going to talk about the the basics of Canadian firearm ownership, uh, but the laws may change. If you're listening to this in 2025, uh, the laws may have changed. Uh, this is not going to be an, an assessment or an opinion on any of the laws as they exist uh, or a critique. We're merely going to cover uh, what the laws are as of today. So if you're listening to this in the years in the future, uh, please check your uh, your local, provincial and federal laws in, in case any of them have changed. We'll get right in with the questions. It, it's understood that uh, You know all things uh, military, small arms context related uh, and civilian firearm ownership related. So the bulk of these questions are going to have to do with uh, whether those things overlap or not. And and I'll start off uh, assuming that there are many many audience members out there who don't know the difference between uh, how military weapons are used in that context and how civilian firearms are used. So we'll start uh, right off with some uh, rapid fire questions to start. adult in Canada uh, go to a store and buy guns.
3: Yeah, that's a really good uh really good question, Sean.
0: Uh
3: no. The simple answer is no. Canada has a, lo- a plethora of laws and regulations surrounding the requirements to purchase and acquire firearms and ammunition, including but not limited to safety programs, licensing with uh 5-year expiration dates, um in certain cases, you have to register your firearms with the uh, with the government, uh, and then there's also mental health checks, uh, criminal background checks. Uh, your spouses, your your ex spouses, have to be uh, have to be able to be notified by the government, by the CFO's office or the chief firearms office, to make sure that they are aware that you want to purchase firearms or be licensed to purchase firearms. There's 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 many different. Boxes that have to be checked before anybody in Canada is legally allowed to acquire a firearm
0: So let's let's talk about those steps, Chris Uh, We'll knock them off one by one. So if uh, if somebody in the military decides they want to buy guns on civvy Street uh, And they can't just go out and buy a a C7. We'll talk about the the gist of that later. So so what is step one? Somebody decides uh, I would like to have guns on my own uh, outside of the military context, what what is step one in the process?
3: Well, to be honest step one is you have to be at least 18. Uh, there's a lot of military members that are 17. Um, but to legally acquire firearms on your, on your own, first step is turn 18. While you are allowed to take the firearm safety course uh, as young as 12, you have to be under supervision, uh, either by a parent, little guardian, or adult with a firearm safety, uh, firearms acquisition license. But to purchase firearms on your own and to handle them on your own, you have to be 18. After that, the next step would be you have to sign up and take the Canadian firearm safety course non-restricted. And this handles your, your classically known as long guns, your hunting rifles and your shotguns.
0: So what does this course entail? You sign up You sign up for the non-restricted firearms course. Uh, what do you learn and what is the the performance check at the end of this to to prove that you're successful? It's about a weekend course. Uh, it takes us about a weekend to put it on.
3: And we cover, we touch on the history of firearms, uh, big part of the firearm safety course, or at least the hunter portion of that, because oftentimes they're run together, is the importance of how firearms really created Canada as the country it is, and uh, how we wouldn't be where we are today without them. Uh, that's a small portion of the history. The evolution of firearms from uh, from muzzle loaders into uh, breech loaders into modern cartridges, what they are today. Then we touch into safety handling practices. We touch into ammunition. There's so much information on ammunition, and such a small time that we actually have to. Instruct it um, and that's ammunition is one of the one of the areas that um, even With the years that I have instructing I still have a hard time ensuring that everything is taught within the time limits that uh, Are allocated for it as well as that we touch on to the um, safe practices as to What ammunition you're able to use in which firearm um, the safe handling procedures as you would uh, on a range or in the field. And the biggest, and I probably should have started with this, the biggest one, and if anybody's interested in, in uh, taking the firearm safety course, are the acts and proves. Two words that guaranteed, if you know them, you're more than likely to pass the course, and if you don't know them, you're more than likely to be unsuccessful. The accent proves. And basically it boils down into... Um, how to safely act while handling a firearm and how to safely prove that the firearm is unloaded and safe to handle
0: what about somebody in the army who's already qualified on the nine mil c7 c9 c6 uh, or you know sergeant small arms instructor who knows army guns inside and out uh, why do they have to take this course that's a great question i, I have a lot of people ask or I have a lot of
3: people come up to me stating that people with such great experience with, with small arms to just be able to challenge the course, which since 2017, no, 16, 17? Yeah, Bill C-42 was about, about four or five years ago now. The reason why it's important to take the course is in the military, uh, for the majority of us, you're handling the, uh, well, essentially two caliber firearms. You're using the 556 by 45, the 556 NATO, uh, or the 762 by 51 or 7.62 NATO for the um, C7, C9, and C6 respectively. So you don't have to worry about the hundreds of other cartridges that are out there. The other big problem is a lot of hunting uh, applications require the use of a shotgun and there's not a lot of trades or um, specialties within those trades that use predominantly shotguns. And you'd be surprised at how many, how many sergeants, warrants, people with decades in the military go through the firearm safety course, come up to me at the end. They're like, we didn't realize that the gauge and the length of shell for, for shotguns was so important. Because if you, if you mix that up and it's very easy to mix up that ammunition, if you do mix it up, you could at the best case damage your firearm and at the worst case end up in the hospital. If not more severe.
0: What about the other firearm types? Period that you just are never covered in an army context. Even on, you could be on a, a foreign weapons type course and still not get them for like a single action revolver or a lever action. Like, what's when you run military members through your course? Are, are they? I imagine this is the first time they're seeing these. In many cases, are they no different than a, a civvy on the street, or is there their confidence level better? Uh, or, what do you see on the course when people get access to new firearms that he, they wouldn't have seen even in the Army context?
3: Okay, there's there's a lot to touch on there. So the first one that I'm going to touch on is, is, is confidence. Um, so I've, I have a lot of experience teaching civilians in the area, and um, I have uh, I've a decent amount of experience teaching the military members on base firearm safety. And the confidence of military members handling the firearms as far as the basic safe handling practices, like pointing the muzzle in a safe direction, keeping your finger off the trigger, Um, teaching a group of trained military members on on firearms handling, I'm able to sit back and feel safe that nobody's going to uh, accidentally point a firearm at somebody else. So I feel pretty good about that.
0: What are the different action types and what are some of the problems that soldiers may have who have never seen these in a military context? So the different action types that we'll see in civilian firearms
3: are the uh, brake action, the semi-automatic, the muzzle loader, lever action, the pump, and the bolt action firearm. Right. So, so the firearms we use in the military are semi-automatic slash automatic. The other firearms that we use, or at least I have used in the military, would be the pump action shotgun, the Remington 870. But other action types, especially the, the lever action, uh, the brake action really, really simple to use, uh, and the and the bolt action uh, aren't regularly used in military service. I assume that uh, I was listening to the sniper podcast before, and I'm pretty sure they use bolt
0: action. They do. Uh, the The bulk of them are bolt action. The U.S. uses a, a semi-auto 50 cal, but we do have the a semi-auto light sniper rifle coming up for. Uh, not just light sniper context, but potentially a a sharpshooter in the section context as well, that it will be semi-auto. Then there's also the lever action, the history of lever action in the military unfortunately was taken out. So what what problems are the soldiers having with these these new ones? You said you mentioned that they do have the confidence, but is their information level still at ground zero if you put a lever or a single action revolver in front of them?
3: Yeah, I don't I I wouldn't say I wouldn't say it's a problem. I, I'd say it's more of um of of an eye opener. You have a lot of people come in that are that are really confident, not overly so, but accurately confident in their in their firearm handling capabilities. And then you throw an action that they've never handled before, and that's exactly like what you said. They're they're back at square one. And I found that Everybody that I've taught on base, every military member that I've taught, has been really good to to take a step back and think, okay, like maybe I don't know everything about firearms. Um, they've they've listened uh, like anybody else would on course. Um, they've you know followed instruction, followed uh, followed the requirements of the course, and they've all passed with flying colors. It's just that step back from five ten. Uh, and in one instant, thirty years of firearm experience, and then you're handled the you're handed this new this new action type, and you're like okay
0: there's there's more to learn. You think the soldiers are good at their confidence we've covered the action types um, so they're learning this on this firearm safety course what other areas are not touched at all in a military context such as the you know the classification system the storage laws that somebody who thinks they can challenge the test and knows enough about it uh, when they come into your course what what are the canadian specific things that they are going to learn that the army would have never taught them so there's three
3: parts to that um, the quickest and easiest would be the classification system. In Canada, we have three classifications of firearms. We have the non-restricted, so your hunting firearms, your, your long guns, so your your hunting rifles, and your shotguns. Non-restricted, your rifles, and your shotguns. Then you also have restricted firearms, which are... Restricted b- would be usually shorter firearms, so your, your handguns, your pistols that still fall within that length restriction for a restricted firearm. And then third would be your prohibited firearms, which, if I remember correctly, they were classified in the 70s and these would include your automatic firearms, your very, very short um, pistols and uh, sawed-off shotguns or sawed-off rifles um, and anything else that the RCMP would classify as prohibited So the other two parts would be that aren't touched in military are safe transportation and safe storage Um, In military depending on the operation you load up your your weapon you're given the um, You're given the status for the day or the status on ground uh, Hop in your vehicle and go not allowed to do that civilian Uh, in Canada It is illegal to transport a loaded firearm so if you have say Um, say you have a semi-automatic rifle with a magazine, having the magazine with rounds in it in the firearm in a vehicle that's moving, or in a vehicle, period, is illegal. Uh, The other bit is safe storage. In the military, you take your weapons out of the weapons vault, you deal with them for the day, or the X, or the course, and then at the end, you put them back in the weapons vault. You don't have to worry about safe storage or uh, locking up the firearm because you're told exactly what has to be done at all times. Where with civilian, there's times where you will have to have the firearm um, and depending on the classification of firearm, it has to be rendered inoperable or it has to be locked or it has to be uh, locked and in a safe. Uh, I won't touch too much into that because there's differences between the classifications and the requirements for for storage of the firearm, but military members while at work don't have to worry about that and that's another thing that a lot of military members coming on course don't realize and and the majority of them have expressed that they they didn't even they didn't realize that that was a
0: requirement. they're glad they took the course so we've touched on the firearm types the action types we've touched on the Safe storage laws, we've touched on the classification system. Are there any specific rule differences? Earlier you mentioned the acts improve. That's even though somebody may have confidence with handling firearms safely in a military context, are there any differences, I know having done the course myself, for example, looking down the barrel, that is something required on the civvy course that that may cause some friction to you when you're the instructor? Yes, that, that subject comes up
3: quite a bit. The two most important parts of firearm safety um, and they're all important but the two most important parts is safe muzzle direction or muzzle control and ensuring that the bore is clear of obstructions. The reason for the bore being clear is if you have excess oil or say you drop your firearm out out in the, in the bush uh, while you're hunting and you get mud or dirt inside the barrel there can be a partial obstruction which can damage the barrel break the barrel or if there's a large enough obstruction you can hurt or you know kill yourself um, so for the course what has come down as uh, an acceptable means of examining the bore you're given two options you can take a cleaning rod that is there and put it down the Put it down the barrel to ensure that there's no obstructions in the barrel and that's what I always recommend to the to the students. The other acceptable means of examining the bore would be to look down the barrel. If you have a break-action firearm you can easily look down the barrel very safely from the breach from the from the the back end where they where the rounds are put into the chamber. But if you don't have a break-action Uh, firearm, then to visually check the barrel you have to look down it. And a lot of people when I explain this give me a funny look. So I explain that if you go through your action proofs, you assume the firearm's loaded, control the muzzle direction, keep your finger off the trigger, see the firearm is safe, point the firearm safe direction, remove the ammunition, observe the chamber, verify the feed path, and then, and only then, after everything is done and you're 100% certain that that firearm is clear of all ammunition then you can examine the bore safely because at that point it's it's really a metal tube connected to wood or plastic but i tell people i've been out uh on field x's really tired uh it's not hard to go out to a hunting camp and get you know a couple hours sleep because you were up chatting with uh, chat with your friends the night before and then you have to be out there at first light and you can be you can be kind of tired. Um, it's extremely important that you follow all of those steps to ensure the firearm is clear and you are literally betting your life when you were looking down that barrel to ensure that the the bore is clear of obstruction. And only then
0: should you do it. I would argue it's not even just a, a civilian hunting context thing. If you're doing a section attack and TRIP, or you're patrolling at night and you can't see anything and you TRIP, it, it's very plausible that you're plunging your barrel into the ground even in an army context. So, uh, I would argue you don't technically have to point the firearm at yourself to check the barrel. It can still be checked on an oblique angle that you can see the, you know, there's not mud jammed in there. Is that fair, or do you, do you are you actually teaching you know, point it straight at yourself. I'm that that is fair.
3: And when you're out and doing things um, on your own, out in out in the out in the woods or out on X, you can adjust your actions based on the circumstance. But when you're on course, and people in the military uh, should probably understand when I say this, there's the course mentality or the uh, schoolisms uh, that you have to abide by. So when we instruct and test people on examining the bore we have to cover like maybe you dropped it you know barrel first in the dirt, maybe you dropped it into uh, like you know sloppy mud puddle. Uh, maybe you pulled out your um, maybe you pulled out your firearm from storage for the uh, for the summer or the winter and you need to ensure that uh, there's no excess oil. I mean at that point you would just take your cleaning brush and you'd be fine. Uh, and just clean the firearm but we have to cover that you ensure that the bore is clear from the breach to the to the chamber. That also being said I tell people that throughout the entire course when you're examining the bore just use the cleaning rod um, because if you forget any of the steps it doesn't count as a proper acts and proofs which which does docu marks on the practical hands-on test. Um, and in real life, if you miss any of those points, um, and if you make a mistake and point the firearm at yourself, you could lose your life. I, I tell people this, like, it's very important to make sure you do the action proofs. And I also explain that I look down the barrel of my firearm to ensure that it's clear. When I'm cleaning it at home, and it's, the barrel is removed completely. Other than that, I have a cleaning kit with me at all times, so I can use a, a cleaning brush
0: um, and a, a rod to ensure that the entirety of the bore is clear. So you briefly touched on there the test at the end. So we've covered, I think, the bulk of the, the content. They can take the course if they want to know the whole thing, but they've taken this weekend course now. How are they tested at the end of this to, to prove that they, they know the knowledge? Awesome question. Uh, so the Canadian Farm
3: Safety Program has two tests at the end, and you have to complete them both. So there's a uh, there's a written test where you are tested on um, essentially technical knowledge. I mean, it sounds like a hard term, but there's 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 twelve year olds that pass this course with flying colors. Uh, you're tested on, you know, what caliber are you able to use with Uh, This firearm if it has this data stamp right stuff like that Um, uh, It also touches on like, you know, what is the largest shotgun caliber? What is the smallest shotgun caliber little technical information pieces that you really need to know to safely own and operate uh, a firearm and So that you can go to the store and you can purchase the correct ammunition. You're you know, you're good to go the other part, which uh, unfortunately is where we find the majority of our unsuccessful students um, is the practical hands-on test. So the practical hands-on test covers how you would handle a firearm um, at a range, how you would handle a firearm in the woods, safe transportation, safe storage, and ammunition identification. Okay. And it's really important that this uh, that it's really important that students are proficient at the practical hands-on, because it really shows the instructor that tomorrow this person, if they were to if they were to have a firearms license, they though they won't because it's, there's a twenty-eight day waiting period minimum, um, but if you were to see this person at the range tomorrow, you would feel safe because they know how to handle the firearm properly how the ha- they know how to handle the firearm safely.
0: So you touched on a, a waiting period there. So if a candidate or student is on your course in the firearm safety course and passes the written test and passes the practical test, gets their sheet of paper saying they've done it, can they then go to Canadian Tire and buy a, a rifle on the wall? No. Uh, once you
3: pass the firearm safety course, the written and practical test, uh, you are given a Essentially, a course report stating that you passed, and you have to you have to mail that report to the uh, chief firearms office with an application for a possession acquisition license, um, and then that application takes a minimum minimum of twenty eight days to be processed. What and sort of information is on that? So there's criminal background checks and uh, there's mental health checks, so that the uh, RCMP know that you'll be able to be out there and handle a firearm safely and lawfully. Um, Then there's also contacts for your spouses or your exes. So they know and are aware that you're getting your firearms license. So uh, if required, the RCMP can contact them and ensure that they're okay with it. Then there's also three references that have to be put in there that the firearms office usually contacts more or less, it's, it's almost easier to get a passport.
0: So the first question I asked you was if any civilian on the street or a military person can go buy a gun, and your answer to that was no. We've now covered, you have to take a written test, you have to take a practical test, you have to fill in an application complete with spousal approval, references, uh, mental health checks, you're sending that in, they're going to sit on that for a minimum mandatory 28 day waiting period all of that happens. All of that is successful. Uh, should the firearms program in the RCMP deem you uh, suitable to get a possession acquisition license or a restricted possession acquisition license, if you've taken even separate courses, uh, what do you then get, and how does your how does your firearms experience change once you have this possession acquisition license in hand? So once you get
3: your license. Um, that's when you're able to go down purchase your firearm purchase your ammunition and everything and then uh from my personal experience you realize one how expensive it is and two how expensive it is to keep everything safely uh, and locked up um but personally my 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 experience once i got my my firearms license is how simple everything really turns out to be for instance, uh, we instruct and test people on the difference between rim fires and center fire cartridges, and a lot of people come into the test and have a hard time uh, have a hard time you know picking picking you out of the crowd. i thought I thought a lot about how that was a failure on my part as an instructor where people uh, people had a hard time uh, deciphering the two. But then I started to realize that it was just a small piece of information, important piece of information, but a small piece of information with the uh, tons, tons of information that's thrown at these people, at these students um, over such a short period of time. But if you spend five minutes at the range with a, well, with a 22 or any other rimfire cartridge, you'll be able to pick them out of crowd within, you know, a hundred meters, right? then there's the experiences that uh that you learn of just how the stuff the stuff that's taught on the course really applies it's extremely important and really simple with the smallest amount of experience so well my civilian firearm usage and my firearm usage at work they very much complement each other i'm able to be that much safer at work uh i'm able to um assist greatly in uh, ranges that I
0: don't normally use at work. One part that I intentionally glossed over because I wanted it to be the, the last thing I covered was the, the last step before you actually get that position acquisition slice mailed to you is the phone interview that you're going to have to do with the, the firearms program itself. And one of the key questions they're going to ask are, is why do you want this in terms of the what is the reason you want to own firearms? So can you, can you cover the reasons that you are allowed to own firearms in Canada and the reason you are not allowed?
3: Yeah, so uh, firearm use in Canada. Obviously, the first one that comes to mind would be would be hunting. Um, here, in, here in New Brunswick, we, uh, we have a very large hunting culture. There's a lot of people that rely on game meat to uh, feed their family or subsidize the meat for the family, myself being one of them. Hunting is definitely a huge reason to lawfully own a firearm. Uh, other reasons that a lot of people own firearms, specifically the restricted firearms, um, like the like pistols and say AR platforms, would be for competition shooting or just uh, recreation shooting at the range. Um, and then little lesser known reasons to have firearms would be nuisance control. Whether uh, you live out um, you live out in a rural area or you own a farm and you're protecting your livestock. And all of these are very uh, safe, lawful, and uh, highly regulated
0: uh, firearm-related activities. You mentioned, you highlighted protection there, livestock context, uh, you know, shooting a coyote or wolf or whatnot. Uh, what about personal protection in Canada? If I, if I feel like I'm in a, a rural area, can I do this and, and call the firearms program and say, uh, yes, I I want to get guns uh to protect myself against other people. Absolutely not.
3: Absolutely not. Uh firearms in Canada are not weapons. They're they're firearms. Uh civilian use of firearms used as weapons against another human being that's not what they're there for. It's never been what they're there for in Canada. That's um you have police services, you have um a multitude of different, uh, different services, and having firearms for personal protection against another, another person, it just creates too many problems, which is one of the reasons why uh, Canada has um, such a low firearm related crime rate in relation to other countries.
0: So for those out there who are about to do this phone call, you're legally allowed to own them for hunting, Target shooting, collecting, and that's it. Is that you're not going to want to answer anything else when you get that phone call, or else you're probably not going to get your license. Is that a fair assessment? Well, I mean, I'm not gonna I'm
3: not gonna tell people like you need to say these words exactly, or or um,
0: or um, uh, was it doctor their answers? <laughs> but oh, yes yeah, Essentially, that's it. Okay, and I know for, for those who might follow the the laws or case studies, and again, we're not lawyers, that's one of the disclaimers. Uh, I think it's worth noting that there have been some people who may have successfully used a firearm in the defense of themselves or property, but it is incredibly complicated. Even for people who may have been dragged through the court system and eventually been found guilty, uh, I I know that intent means a a huge deal, uh, and you mentioned the, the use of the word weapon there. In the military, when we use the word weapon, it's because the, in- the intent of that system is to do other people harm in an enemy context, either in the Defence of Canada or, or other operations. In the civilian context, you're not allowed to own a firearm with the intent to use it on somebody else. And that's not just for a firearm, you're not allowed to use, you know, to have a knife or a bat or a stapler. If you're coming after somebody else down the street with a stapler with the intent to do harm, that is therefore a weapon. So I think that clarifies some of that. And even for the people who may have successfully used a firearm, they didn't own the firearm originally for protection, and even though they may have been found not guilty in the courts, they still had to fight through the court system for years, still had that black cloud hanging over themselves for years, and spent tens of thousands of dollars on legal fees. So for anyone out there uh, thinking that it's a defense-related thing, Even though people have been found, uh, may have been found not guilty, it's incredibly complex, and there's other specifics of exactly how that incident may have gone down. Is the intruder advancing, as opposed to is the intruder running away down your driveway? Again, we're not lawyers, uh, but I would highly recommend uh, not getting into firearms for the the purpose of protection. It's going to cost you tens of thousands of dollars. Uh, If you are fortunate enough to be found not guilty, worst case you, you actually are going to jail. And as Rod Giltaka, a famous instructor, always mentions, you know, that, that's devastating for your average person. You're getting thrown. If you use firearms uh, intentionally for defense, that's something that's going to land you jail time. It's going to land you probably a release from the forces because you're now a, a criminal in jail. So uh, I, I think it's very apt points that you covered hunting, target shooting, and I, I didn't just say that tongue in cheek for the, uh, the answers when you're on the phone call. It, it is very valid. that the, that, that's the way to, to stay a, a safe firearm owner. So I've pretty much wrapped up my questions now. Uh, other than at, at the end, I want to open it up to you to, to answer or feel like you want to discuss anything that hasn't been discovered yet. However, b- uh, before we wrap up, I'd like to hand it over to, to Kelly, the producer, to she, if she has any follow-up questions for you.
2: Having moved across the country, what are the laws in regards to actually transporting them from province to province, if any, and the way that they're treated?
3: Uh, very good question. So when you're talking non-restricted firearms, so you're hunting rifles, you're hunting uh, shotguns, the process is actually really simple. Um, it basically boils down into they have to be unloaded, case them, lock them, go through all the proper uh, steps and procedures just like you would store them, and then if you're driving in your uh, personal vehicle you can stick them in the trunk or keep them out of sight, something and travel the way across the across the uh, provincial lines, would be totally fine. As far as the restricted, um, then you're then you have to start to get into uh, into different uh, permits because uh, restricted firearms are. And I forgot to mention earlier, restricted firearms are still registered. So the RCMP know you have not just restricted firearms, but you have. This serial number and that serial number and this make model and everything—they know exactly what you have. Not unlike your car registry, right? Uh, the other one with that, and this is a really important one: if at any time you move, not just uh, between provinces, but if any time you move, like even just across the street, you have thirty days to notify the chief firearms office to uh, to notify them of your move, right? And the last one, which really anybody, that, um, anybody that's anybody that been on one of my courses or any of the firearms courses would be familiar with. If you have any questions whatsoever, call the Chief Firearms Office at uh,
0: 1-800-731-4000. So great questions. Thanks, Kelly. Uh, Chris, uh, I leave you the, the final word to you. any uh, departing wisdom or would you like to cover any subjects that um, I failed to answer or failed to ask? Uh, you get the last word. No, I think we I think
3: we basically covered everything. Um, or I think you basically covered covered everything. All very good questions. The only parting wisdom that I would have to state would be don't don't wait. Take the course. Uh, the course doesn't expire. Uh, your license does, but the course doesn't expire. Um, you no, know, January twenty twenty. We have um, we have a large group of people in Canada that are lawful. F- law-abiding firearm users uh we have a large group of people that are unlicensed and want want to be licensed and obviously don't have firearms yet um there's there's a large stigma against uh against firearms that's been going on for for years and the more support we have from law-abiding firearm firearm owners and the better chance that um you know our kids in like 10, 20 years down the road, we'll be able to enjoy um, the safe and lawful use of firearms. And along with the safe and lawful use of firearms, uh, you still have to abide by different uh, provincial and municipal regulations, which we didn't touch on. For instance, provincial regulations having to do with uh, wildlife management and hunting. Uh, just because you have your firearms license doesn't mean you're automatically allowed to go out and, and hunt. That's a completely different that's completely different course. And then you also have to abide by uh, municipal regulations as well. Some municipalities uh, don't allow the use of firearms in, uh, in their city limits and one issue that might be coming up is some municipalities might be putting re- uh, restrictions and banning certain classifications of firearms in their city limits, period. Take take the course, it's a fun time, you get to learn a lot, and, uh, and with firearms hunting, with firearms hunting, uh, the more people we have involved, uh, the better it is for everybody.
0: Great, Chris, thank you very much for your time. Uh, it's been a great guest, and I hope uh, a lot of the audience members out there have learned quite a great deal, even if they might know Weapons in the military context you may not exactly understand firearms in the civilian context. So thank you very much Chris. Thank you for having me Sean Thank you again to our guest today Chris uh, adding his Annex interview onto his uh, Our episode on small arms For today's recommendation. I'm gonna recommend either the slam fire radio podcast It's a uh, by a group of Canadian civilian shooters who uh, Understand that not everyone is a, uh, a firearms expert, so look up Slamfire Radio on your podcast app. If you prefer message board-like posts, uh, I would recommend Gun Owners of Canada. There are other ones out there in Canada, and even one bigger one. But if you're uh, new into the world of firearms, I recommend Gun Owners of Canada. It's not overwhelmed with responses. If you ask something, you'll, you'll get recognized and you'll get answers. So check out Slamfire Radio and Gun Owners of Canada. Listener feedback today, I got, I got quite a few messages when it was made apparent that we were gonna have an episode on uh, small arms in an army context and firearms in a civilian context. We got some on uh, what is the future of the C9. Uh, as far as Canada is concerned, we have not yet made a decision to you know, scale back or cut the C9. We, we've got the new, fairly new models in now with the, the green furniture. However, it, it is definitely Uh, a thing worldwide that they seem to be getting away from the C9-based platform. Other countries call it different things. That is based on some scientific data done by the UK and the US as far as what individual soldier can do as far as lethality and killing enemy. And I know there are people out there who love the C9, myself included. I fell in love with it at 17 the first time I shot it uh, in the reserves. But uh, doing the data of what that can get you and what it is. Is it worth it for the weight? Is it worth it for having a separate system? A soldier is capable of firing it from the shoulder, even though it's bigger than a rifle and it's technically a machine gun. You know, a, a bigger, beefier person can still fire it on automatic from the shoulder. Uh, but for the extra weight, for the extra having a different syst- a different uh, weapon in the system to, uh, to learn uh, and employ, other countries, such as the US and UK, among others, have decided to start uh, cancelling that and they're going with more precision based uh, firing platforms. Either uh, automatic rifles in some cases, the the US went away from automatic rifles uh, to some extent uh, with a three-arm burst and others. They're getting back to now rifles that have automatic capability with beefier barrels that didn't exist in the 70s uh, when the M16 and the early C7s were around, so you can have uh, You know, C7-like rifles now firing on automatic with less problems than you used to have. You learn less, uh, it may not fire the overall volume because you're still only putting magazines on it. Uh, You you can buy 30 and 50 round mags, but you're obviously not going to have a a, a 200 round uh, belt like you do with the C9. But even then, it's just a lot quicker to go from automatic back to single shot, and the Americans are doing this as well. And you're, you may, over the next decade or two, start to see the demise of, of C9 uh, like weapons worldwide. Not necessarily in Canada. We have not decided to, uh, to scrap it yet. But other countries uh, do seem to be uh, going more with the sharpshooter. of If you can hit somebody from 400 metres, you should just hit them instead of suppressing them and, and laying down 50 rounds. If you can uh, shoot and kill that target within a few rounds, uh, that's much better. Other questions we got on the, the definitions of assault rifle, assault weapon, uh, sniper rifles. This straddles somewhat uh, the civilian and army context. The definition of assault rifle uh, has to be thought of in a historic context, you know, storming a trench or storming a room. You, you are assaulting that room, so by definition you are there to do it harm and clear it out. Uh, and it's much better to round a corner or go into a trench if you know it's filled with enemy. Automatic fire is the way that that's going to be cleared. We still teach that at the end of the, uh, the weapons test level 3 for the C7. You are still putting it on automatic. So anything that can be changed to, uh, any rifle that can be changed to automatic fire, uh, for that purpose, is called an assault rifle. The term assault weapon doesn't really exist in a military context. You can make an argument of where that was invented and why, but we don't call them. We, we do use the term weapon in the Army, as brought up in the the small arms discussion, for anything meant to do harm. So when you talk about, you know, what weapon are you carrying? You're talking about the C7, the C9 machine gun and the C6. We refer to those all as as weapons in this context, but in the army, it's there to do harm. Uh, In the civilian context, you can't buy these things. And that's one of the questions I don't think we answered completely with Chris of can you go out and buy a C7? The, The answer is no. Even if you had your Possession Acquisition License, either non-restricted or restricted, you cannot buy anything that shoots automatic, and the C7 is automatic capable uh, based on the trigger mechanism in the SEER. You cannot do that. You're you not allowed uh, in any way to go out, uh, regardless of how perfect your record is and what level of training you have. You cannot get a uh, prohibited uh, Possession Acquisition License, uh, as per the laws today, and it's been this way for, for quite a while. There are some people uh, who, prior to the changes to the Firearms Act in the 1990s, had various forms of uh, automatic uh, firearms, either uh, machine guns or rifles, uh, and they were able to grandfather those in and keep a a prohibited possession acquisition license for those, but you can't get that now. So, you can only get non-restricted or restricted based on the training you get. You can, if you like the look of a C7 and the manual of arms of how it feels and how it looks, You can get a rifle called an AR-15, which is an Armalite 15. Think of iPhone 1, 2, 3, 4, 5. In a few years, we're going to have an iPhone 15. The AR-15 is merely Armalite's 15th rifle design, so you can buy that. But it is not a C7 equivalent. There's nothing you can do legally to convert it to to automatic fire. It is only a a semi-automatic rifle Uh, much like many other uh, semi-auto, non-restricted rifles you can buy, but it is on the restricted scale. So if you are interested in buying an AR-15, as of uh, the recording of this podcast, you are able to do that if you go through the steps that we talked about to get a restricted uh, possession acquisition license, but it won't be a C7. You you cannot buy anything that shoots automatic in Canada. As far as the definition of of sniper rifle, in the Army context, we use it based on its employment. Uh, a, A sniper using one of the three... Uh, or more, depending on uh, what you see as an official use of a sniper rifle. But it's employed in that context. Even if an infantry were to pick up that rifle, it's still technically using a sniper rifle, even though they're not employing it in a sniper context. In a civilian context, that that doesn't really exist. There's all sorts of hunting rifles, either bolt action or other, with the scope. You don't really call them sniper rifles. It doesn't matter the caliber, it doesn't matter the size. Since you can only lawfully own firearms in Canada for uh, target shooting, hunting, or collecting, you're not using it in a sniper context, so it's not called a sniper rifle. It's merely a a bolt-action or other type of action rifle with a scope on it. So one part that I didn't cover on the episode when I talked uh, the pros and cons between 5.56 and 7.62. If you're a fan of small arms and ammunition, if you reload your own, or if you just uh, like following what the Army is doing, You've probably read articles on what the U.S. wants to do moving forward in terms of finding an intermediate caliber between a 5.56 and 7.62 NATO. This is, these are not new cartridges in the world. There's all sorts of different uh, 6.5 and 6.8 calibers out there. The aim of all of these has been trying to, in, in some way, not just for hunting applications, but to create something that can be used at platoon level so there's only one type of small arm. Obviously, NATO has standards for a reason, and, and most NATO countries have heavily bought into 5.56 5, and 7.62. However, there, there are other NATO standards out there that, that can be used, so there's there's nothing saying that we can't have just one more. Uh, if you're well-read on what the American army is thinking about doing right now, and I'm not here to air, air the US's laundry, you can research this, it's open source information now, they are actively pursuing an intermediate calibre, particularly in the 6.8 range uh, with potentially a, a non-brass casing. So feel free to Google that, look it up. Uh, the, the ideal ammo, uh, if you could create such a thing, would be something that weighs the same as a 5.56 round, uh, but has more punch uh, in as well. To, to be able to bridge the gap between what the rifle offers and what the GPMG offers, It does come with immense pros. If you could just have one caliber that your rifles and your machine guns are using uh, that can be standardized, obviously, logistically, that that makes a lot of sense. So uh, as of 2020, it hasn't launched yet. They're actively looking at it. And and as far as the Canadian infantry, uh, this doesn't mean that we're going to be dropping anything we're using uh, anytime soon. Even the the Americans themselves are are free to say that just because a a new ammo could be created, it it doesn't mean that all of a sudden uh, 5.56 and 7.62 uh, service weapons are going to be obsolete. They could be phased out over decades and decades. But very interesting times ahead if you're you're into small arms. So check out uh, anything you can find on the upcoming uh, 6.8 that the US Army is looking at and uh, more to follow in terms of what Canada does uh, should they actually launch that uh, wide scale. Uh, if we'll buy on or just stick with what we have. One other point I wanted to to clarify, and I stumbled when I was covering it on the small arms, the Browning High Power is not a 1911. It it is similar in terms of it as a hammer. They were created at a similar time. It it was a, I did misspeak when I said it. A 1911 was a Colt design. The Browning 9mm High Power was a competitor. So think of it like a Ford Mustang and a Chevy Camaro. So it's inaccurate to say Browning 1911 when talking about the Browning 9mm High Power. It was called, the, even though it was only a 9mm calibre, uh, still more than enough to kill somebody with a, a headshot or a heart shot. However, it is not a 1911. Like I said, it was a competitor. It had 13 rounds back at the time when most 1911s were only shooting uh, 7 rounds because of 45 calibre. Especially in a single stack uh, configuration the magazine, uh, fires a lot less than 13 rounds. So for the haters out there who couldn't stand it and wanted to jump through your speakers and kill me when I said the the Browning 1911, I apologize for that. I knew it when I said it, but I didn't want to clear it up uh, in the middle of the conversation. We end every podcast with a selection from one of our music bands out there. Today's is from the Algonquin Regiment Northern Pioneers, and it is their March past.